Last Christmas, I had an interesting conversation. I was talking to a guy I knew back in high school. Somehow the topic of money came up. My old friend started to tell me, cryptocurrency can never be money. It's all just a pyramid scheme, he said. It's not based on anything. It's just that people think it has value, so they keep trading it. And I asked him, my friend, what would you use as a way to store value? And he looked at me and said, art, classical paintings. He has a Picasso in his home. And I said, but you told me cryptocurrency only has value because people think it has value. And what makes a painting any different? He said that paintings are beautiful, so they have objective value. Now, this conversation involved a couple beers, went on and on for a while. But it was later that I was really struck at how people can make actual financial decisions based on gut intuitions about what is real and what therefore has value. My friend thinks that beauty is real. This makes paintings more real, hence more valuable than other things like cryptocurrency. I don't think many of us are aware at how our ideas about what is real shape the decisions we make. If you think beauty is a fundamental feature of reality, you'll invest in art. If you think gender, sexual or racial identity are fundamentally real, it will affect your view on various controversies involving education. If you think evil is real, it can play a role in how you think about the war with Russia or chaotic violence occurring inside the United States. What we think of as real really affects us. And yet people don't want to talk about reality. They don't want to get philosophical or metaphysical. Well, that's too bad because there's a molecule called N-N-dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, which has been finding its way into the culture of the global north at an astonishing pace. And when people ingest this substance, they are forced to confront very deep questions about what is real. And not only them, the cultural, philosophical, and religious conundrums raised by encounters with DMT entities and transportation to an alleged DMT realm are spilling over into communities of people that don't do DMT. Mainstream religious communities are now adapting the way they think about demonology or the jinn in order to accommodate what people are reporting while using DMT. The immediately shocking thing about this substance is the ability that it has to change the way people think about fundamental metaphysical questions. For example, one study by the John Hopkins School of Medicine found that of 2,500 people who had on average reported 14 DMT trips, 58% of them reported that their belief in the supernatural was the direct result of their DMT experience. So what is going on with DMT? What could it possibly do to people to change the way they see the world so dramatically? At first, I thought there's no way people could get any rationally defensible evidence out of a drug experience. But as I began reading and listening to people's DMT experiences, I found a number of features of the DMT trip that were philosophically puzzling and worthy of being discussed as a way to help understand why it might be that people who use this substance will radically change the way they see the world. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. 
tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back. Here is a quick disclaimer. I don't condone the use of DMT. It is illegal in the United States. Many people have very negative experiences on DMT that continue to haunt them for an extended period of time afterwards. There is an overdose risk, which can cause heart problems and blood pressure issues. And here's a metaphysical disclaimer. If these DMT entities are real, you just don't know necessarily that they're good for you. And encountering them is a positive thing. And yes, they're doing research right now on psychedelics and saying, well, psychedelics are very therapeutic. But a lot of that research is being funded by pharmaceutical companies who want to turn psychedelics into medicines that they can then sell. And so, you know, when you're looking to justify a new medicine, you're going to do research that's going to give you the results you want. So I'm just saying, think critically, be aware of the law, make your own judgments based on, you know, your own research, etc., and not just on anything I say in 30-minute podcast. Now, this is a part of a multi-part series I'm going to do on DMT. I'm going to do a first part where I'm going to talk you through five properties of the DMT experience that I identified from reading and listening to numerous reports of DMT trips. These are properties that I find to be challenging. They raise questions about whether something about the DMT trip could rationally be accepted as valid or real. The second part is going to be a philosophical analysis or argument about DMT. That'll be another episode. And then the third part is a summary of the global cultural impact DMT is having on religion and counterculture. I'm trying to make the case with empirical data, philosophical argument, and cultural testimony that there's something really big happening with DMT, that it's an unusual substance. It is driving dramatic cultural change around the global north. All I'm doing in this part one is identifying five properties of the DMT experience that that I found just listening and reading reports about DMT for you and try to convince you that these are unusual. They go beyond what you would expect an intoxicated person to experience. And because of that, they're uniquely challenging. That doesn't mean you have to accept them, but I'm hoping that you'll finish the episode and you'll be able to see why the experience itself seems to be real to so many people. What got me started on this topic was a uh, early January article in the New Republic magazine about a nonprofit in Boulder, Colorado called Medicinal Mindfulness. They're developing a therapeutic treatment plan called DMTX which will keep people high on DMT for long periods of time 
possibly hours. Because when the drug is smoked, it usually only lasts about 5 to 15 minutes. Now, they're planning on using an IV to extend that. The article mentions that they plan to do a lot of research, including putting two people in different rooms to see if they can find each other inside the DMT hyperspace, or at least if they can communicate somehow while under the influence of DMT. So extrasensory perception type communication. I read that and I was like, what the what? Um, because as open as I am to a wide range of bizarre ideas, it just seems intuitive to me that you would not take the experiences that people have under the influence of a narcotic or a mind-altering substance, in this case they call it a psychedelic, I wouldn't take those seriously because, you know, we all kind of know that when people are in an altered state of consciousness, whether due to a substance or illness, their perceptions often become less accurate, not more. I think we all generally accept that being in an extraordinary state of consciousness can cause a hallucination, an unreal visual representation, or even a delusion, a belief in something that's not true. You know, like you think there's somebody in the room with you when there's not. That can be because you're, you have an intense fever, right? Or you're on LSD. But if people are doing research to explore the DMT reality, I think we're at a point where we all need to get up to speed about what it is about DMT that's having such an effect on people. So three features of DMT that everybody should kind of know. It causes hyper-real visual imagery, causes the experience of having an encounter with an entity, and it causes the experience of being relocated to another place. Now, my understanding is that these are dose-dependent, and also they're not invariable. So some people will smoke and they'll just see like cartoon figures in in the room with them. Other people, you know, might smoke a lot and they feel like there's an entity, uh, not just having a hallucination, but they really think it's there. They really feel like they're in the presence of something supernatural. Um, and only some people will have a full-blown experience of transportation to another realm. There's these three features and, you know, you might get some or more of them. It seems like the more you smoke, generally, the more likely you're going to get all three, but that's not even a guarantee. Okay, so let's get to the five features of DMT trips that I came across just listening to people and reading reports. And for every one, you can just ask yourself, can this property of the DMT trip overcome the objection that when you use a mind-altering substance, your experiences tend not to be real? And then I'll do analysis at the end. So the first one is hyper-realism. Things look realer than real. Or you could see something that's way more vivid and way more powerful than regular life. Like whatever it is, it, it's not, you see more. It's more vibrant. It's more powerful. Many people report that whatever the content of their visual experiences while on DMT, it is more detailed more complex and more real-seeming than things in real life. Closely related to hyper-realism is the experience of not being intoxicated. Because it doesn't feel like you're on a drug. Because you're still you. That's mm -hmm. another part of it. It doesn't change your... Like, when you're drunk, it changes the way you think. Like, right. you think different. 
this is not that. This is like you think the same way, but you're being confronted with something that's insanely alien. We'll have to do more research before we can know for sure whether hyperrealism and feeling like you're not intoxicated are really two distinct properties, but I think on the face of it they are. So when I see all these reports of people saying it's very detailed or it's more complex than real life, that seems to me like something that I've experienced myself not being intoxicated. Just, you know, uh, when you get a new pair of glasses and your eyesight had been degrading for a while and suddenly you put on a new pair of glasses and you can see more detail. I've had that feeling of being like, wow, it's like things are more real. I've also had that, this experience after a hard rain when the sun starts to come out and the sun is diffusing the light in a way so that there isn't a lot of shadow. There's really the optimal light for seeing things in the natural world. You feel like, oh, things are really real. Friends have described that to me as hyper real. In contrast, I would think that feeling like you're not intoxicated comes from this idea that, you know, when you do different kinds of substances, they kind of have certain feelings in common, like this sense of things being vague or your thought processes being sluggish. I think we all know, not all of us, but a lot of us will know, you know, what it's like to have a couple beers and then to have your thought processes kind of slowed down. Based on my reading, I got the impression that this experience of not being intoxicated is something that's more salient for people who are more experienced drug users. So people who, I guess, do a lot of different drugs will then be really struck at how, well, it seems like there's some things that being on drugs have in common, but those common features of drugs are not there in the DMT experience. A third property, I'm going to call it wondrousness. When people encounter DMT entities, they intuit that these entities have wondrous properties. They often seem to be very, very intelligent, very, very wise. They understand you better than anyone else could. They transmit to you copious amounts of extremely detailed information that you later cannot recall. Here's a clip. And whatever is over there seems to know you. It seems to understand, it seems to be you're communicating with something, something that's far more intelligent than you, far more advanced, and not hindered by all of the things that we're hindered by. Like, I'm going to stop there and analyze these. So we have three properties, hyper-real, not like being intoxicated, and experiences of wondrousness. These are three features of the experience that at least subjectively cut against the thought that, well, you're just in an altered state of consciousness. So they're all experiences suggestive of something being real. Although I will concede that none of these properties necessarily guarantee that the experience is real. When it comes to hyper-realness, right, when I put on a better pair of glasses and things look hyper-real to me, you know, nothing's changed about the world. Something's changed about my eyes and the way my eyes can access the world. When it comes to this experience of not being intoxicated, you would think people would just say, well, DMT is a special drug that doesn't make you feel like you're intoxicated. When it comes to wondrousness, I think it's a little bit less clear. Certainly, I feel like I've had dreams where somebody was imparting to me great wisdom. It seemed like I was learning something deeply insightful. And then when I woke up, it appeared to be nonsense. But it also always seems to me that I just can't quite remember the details. And I've also noticed this with people describing the DMT trips 
they're short on details about why the creatures are so wise or so intelligent. It often seems to me that people just experience them that way. But they also seem to say that, well, there's a lot of details that I just can't give you anymore because I just can't remember all of it. So I want to get the weirdest and last two properties out there quickly. Fourth property, synchronicities. People who use DMT, not infrequently, report that there are strange things that happen afterwards, after the effect of the drug has completely worn off. One story I came across was from Daniel Pinchbeck. He's a professional writer living in New York. He took a psychedelic turn with his writing career some years ago. He writes a lot about DMT containing ayahuasca. And uh, he reports that during a period where he was doing a lot of ayahuasca in New York City, he started to have strange things happen at his apartment. Things indicative of poltergeist activity activity, including a large glass mirror that shattered all on its own. These things upset him so much, he actually had the apartment exercised. And here's a less spooky clip from another DMT user. In my first trip that they kept telling me was, this is not the end. This is not the end. They kept telling me that because I think I was asking them, like, is this what happens when you die? Like, what is this? They said the phrase, this is not the end multiple times. Directly after the trip, we go to a restaurant. And there's a huge sign that just says, this is not the end on the thing. And I'm like, what? Because the drug is such a short half-life, person is no longer under the influence of it. If they say, go to a restaurant and it's an hour later, like, that's it. You're not on DMT anymore. Found numerous cases, people reporting, you know, they just had experiences that occurred after a DMT trip that seemed to have been, in some sense, prophesized or anticipated. And so let me get to the last one now, and this is probably the freakiest, which is interpersonal consistency. People reporting that they encounter the same thing on a DMT trip as somebody else who they're proximate to or in some way connected with, but who could not possibly have known about their DMT experience. So I'm going to walk you through the best example I could find of this. And it requires a little bit of setting up. Hi, my name is Shane Moss, and this is the craziest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. When I first started smoking DMT, I was going to these different dimensions and seeing these different beings, and I kind of thought it was all in my head. It doesn't look like that when you're in the experience, but uh, it's how I rationalized it to myself afterwards. I would be talking with these beings that were seemingly giving me all of this information that I could never remember. And I was like, well, you need to show me something to prove that you're outside of my head. Now, this gentleman is several DMT trips in, for he has a trip where he finds himself at some kind of circus. And there's a Ferris wheel, and there's some guy playing a piano, and then this dancing purple gypsy woman comes out, and it's like I've known her 
for lifetimes. Like I've spent thousands of lifetimes with this woman and it's just been a while since I've seen her and we saw each other. And right away I was like, oh my God, it's so good to see you. And we caught up for a while. And then uh, when it was the DMT was wearing off, she told me that everything was just going to be okay and that all of this just keeps on repeating itself over and over again. So not to worry about it too much. Now the punchline comes the next day when he introduces his friend to DMT without telling his friend about the purple gypsy woman. This smile comes on his face and he is just like, oh, they love you here. And I was like, yeah, there's like a real sense of, of like love or going home or belonging or something. And he's like, no, they love you, Shane. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, there's this purple woman in here that says that she knows you really well and she just wants you to know that she cares about you. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm in this carnival and there's this Ferris wheel and this guy playing a piano and there's this purple dancing gypsy woman that says that she knows you. I didn't talk for about 10 minutes. You know, so his friend goes to the same place as him, goes to this weird hyperdimensional circus and meets his DMT girlfriend. And um, I find numerous cases of this, people saying, you know, they smoke DMT and then they see the same thing as their friend who also smokes DMT or they see it. And then later their friend is telling about DMT and they see the thing that they saw. And it's not like there's a finite number of DMT entities, you know. Um, Rick Strassman has done a lot of research on this and says that people just have a wide variety of DMT experiences. They're so varied that it's often really hard to categorize them. And the entities come in such a wide range of varieties. And, and, you know, and yet people will be like, well, I keep seeing the same thing that my friend sees. And so that's probably why these people at Medicinal Mindfulness want to explore whether two people can meet in hyperspace and exchange information. And so this is very, very strange. And I don't see how the normal objection that, well, you are on drugs and when you're on drugs, the things you see aren't real. I don't see how that objection can get any purchase against these last two properties of the DMT trip. The experience of synchronicities in order to explain it away. If you're really committed to like, let's just come up with some materialistic or physical explanation. The first thing I would go to would be self-selection, that maybe the kinds of people who smoke DMT are already the kinds of people who have paranormal experiences. Maybe they have synchronicities all the time. Maybe they're people who see patterns, coincidences all the time. You know, maybe they're the kinds of people who get haunted by poltergeists. And then they just ascribe these experiences to the DMT. Maybe they're not reporting that they've had stuff like this happen all their life. The only other thing I could think of is sort of a mean-spirited, cynical objection, which is that maybe the DMT just kind of makes people, in a broader sense, a little bit disoriented from reality, and they start to misremember things, and they start to, uh, like, maybe the, this guy we just heard from, Shane Moss, like, doesn't remember that he told his friend about the DMT woman, or maybe he's just lying, maybe the DMT makes you less conscientious, but I, I don't see any evidence of that in the psychiatric literature. I actually went and looked, and I found at least one study where they looked at ayahuasca, which contains DMT. They looked at long-term ayahuasca use, 
And they said long-term ayahuasca use was not associated with increased psychopathology or cognitive deficits, but was associated with enhanced mood and cognition and reduced impulsivity. But then another study found that long-term ayahuasca use was associated with increased cortical thickness of the anterior cingulate cortex and cortical thinning of the posterior cingulate cortex. Now, these are parts of the brain. Now, the posterior cingulate cortex is associated with internally directed thoughts, so it would be involved in recollection. And I guess if it's getting thinner, that would possibly be the case that your your memories are weaker. But they didn't find any evidence of memory or cognitive impairment in long-term ayahuasca users. So it doesn't add up. I don't see any real evidence that DMT use is impairing anyone's cognition or giving them a more pathological personality. Although I will say I didn't do like a real professional literature search. And if anyone knows of anything that I should be aware of, any research to that effect, please send me an email spectral skull at protonmail.com. I would really appreciate it. In any event, I really don't find that to be an attractive route to go down. The route that like it's somehow just making people nuts. And so this is why, you know, I said at the beginning, I did the research. What I decided was that there's, this is really weird. And this is the kind of thing that makes sense to have scientists looking into. Let's find out. Can people actually communicate in DMT hyperspace or not? And if they can, you know, at least it's ESP. You know, there might be something else going on. Maybe there is an intermediary. Maybe they really are going to another realm. Seems like the kind of thing you just, you're going to have to test it. And then you're just going to have to live or die by the results of the tests, the, the research. Now let's end with one final thought. Going back to that property of wondrousness, the idea that you could have the experience of something that is greater than you, that is more intelligent, right, that is wiser, or more caring, without commenting anymore on the validity of those sorts of experiences, it really reminded me of something from the 16th century. Great philosopher René Descartes, in the 1640, Descartes produced a book called The Meditations, Meditations on First Philosophy, and it's all about his attempt to find a foundation for the sciences that would be completely trustworthy. And Descartes starts off by saying, I can't use my senses as the basis for scientific reason. I can't just say, well, I can trust whatever I see or hear or feel. And the, usually most people consider the best of his reasons is I could be dreaming. At any point in time, you know, I could always be sort of dreaming or in some sense under an illusion about what it is that I'm seeing or feeling or hearing. And so Descartes starts to kind of get trippy on his own without any substances. And he starts to say, and he starts to say, well, is there anything in my mind that I can really trust? Is there anything that I know is real? The first thing he comes up with is himself. He says, I have this idea of myself and it has to be self-validating because there's no way to have the experience of being a self. There's no way to think without there being a thinker. So this is where we get that. I think, therefore I am. Later, he comes up with another one. It's the idea of God. And he says, I have this idea of God this idea of a being that is infinite and eternal, omnipotent, omnibenevolent. And he goes, well, where could I have gotten that idea from? He says, I, Descartes, I've never encountered anything infinite or eternal, omnipotent or omnibenevolent in my life. 
since I've never encountered anything like that in the real world, I couldn't have made it up by just taking my sensory experiences and mixing them together. He also doesn't think he could have extrapolated his ideas of like infinity or eternalness from his experiences. He says, like, all I could ever extrapolate would be the idea of something being indefinite, having no clear ending. I can't get this idea of infiniteness out of my experiences because I've never experienced anything that's infinite. So the argument that he's pushing here is just the idea of God is too big to ever originated from inside his own head. It has to have come from outside of him. And he even says that he thinks the idea of God must have been put there in his head by a God. No lesser being could have installed the idea inside his mind. So in Descartes in the 16th century is struggling with his own mystical vision of God. It is an experience that he recognizes happens inside his mind, but he says, but he thinks it's a piece of mental content that you can know to be true just from inspecting its properties. You might wonder whether Descartes is in a better position to know the existence of God than a DMT user is in to know the existence of these DMT entities. Maybe they're in comparable epistemic positions. I don't know. Think about it. And at the end of that section of the meditations, he says, quote, Before examining this point more carefully and investigating other truths that may be derived from it, I want to pause here and spend some time contemplating God to reflect on his attributes and to gaze with wonder and adoration on the beauty of this immense light so far as the eye of my darkened intellect can bear it, end quote. So he's certainly talking about a wondrous idea, the wondrous idea of God, which to him, Descartes, this drug-naive man, this French man in the 16th century, is provably true just from the experience that he has of it. And so you may think the DMT people are just wrong about their experiences, but I hope I've shown you here that like there's actually a history of people feeling like, or actually making an argument, that there are some experiences that you can know to be valid just from inspecting the nature of the experience. That's just this fascinating parallel that I see between 16th century French philosophy and what people are experiencing on DMT. You'll have to wait for a later episode where I actually look at Andrew Gallimore, who has actually tried to develop a philosophy about how it could be that DMT puts us in contact with entities and transports us to another dimension. That's coming later. Contrary to the teachings of Rene Descartes, I do think you have to start with the empirical evidence, facts at hand, and we'll work our way to philosophy next. Okay, everybody, that's it for today. Now, I'm not trying to convince you that DMT trips are real. I am just trying to show you that the DMT experience raises interesting philosophical questions and has some properties that can help explain why people take the experience to be real. Don't go out and do DMT just because you heard me talk about it. Um, Dark side of DMT experiences, something we'll be talking about in a future episode. And I've done a previous episode about psychedelics and religious belief, where I argue that people should really try to get their philosophies squared away with arguments and reason before they go on these psychedelic pilgrimages. The experience seems to be so disorienting for people. I think it would really help if people kind of knew what they thought about metaphysics. And there's a lot of literature that you can read if you're interested in knowing, well, like, are there gods or could there be a god or... Is materialism true? There's a ton of material you can go through 
sort of get yourself oriented to reality before having a trippy experience. I think without being properly prepared, it could make you a less informed person. Until next time, stay strange and stay sane.